Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now, with today's message, here's Ed Stevens. This is the first of our summer podcast series. You are in for a treat. We will be presenting some of our best seminar presentations as well as some of our former Preterist Radio podcasts that have not yet been posted here. This session, we will share a message that I presented at the 2009 Evangelical Theological Society Conference in New Orleans. There were several young seminary students in the audience, along with a few fellow preterists. My lesson deals with the morals and ethics that come out of our eschatological worldviews. At the end, there will be a brief Q&A interaction with some of the young futurist seminary students who were in the audience. So, without any further comments, we will get right into the presentation. I'm Edward E. Stevens from uh, International Preterist Association. And my topic was entitled, How Eschatology Affects Our Ethics. I probably need to state at the outset what my worldview is. I grew up in a Southern Baptist environment, which was definitely premillennial, but not necessarily dispensational. That shaped my worldview. My generation heard Billy Graham, beginning in 1952, right after World War II, constantly predicting that the end was near and that Christ would surely come in our generation and that the rapture was about to occur. Hal Lindsey told us we were the terminal generation. Our concept of the end was shaped by the atom bomb and the nuclear holocaust that was supposed to occur in our lifetime. We believed in an earth-burning, cosmos-collapsing, universal Armageddon. It was supposed to be the end of human life in the material universe and the beginning of our eternal life in the spiritual realm. It was supposed to be the end of time and the end of human history in the physical universe. There was not the slightest thought of any other concept of the end being biblically possible. Early in my career, my college career, I was introduced to Josephus and the idea that Matthew 24 was fulfilled, at least part of it, in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. That radically changed my worldview, and I have never recovered from it. It was a paradigm shift in every sense of the word. I rapidly moved from the pre-mill to the ah-mill position, then to a partial preterist perspective, and finally into the full preterist view where I have remained for over 30 years. So my comments here will be coming from a past fulfillment, or what we would call a full preterist perspective. In this session, I want to talk about how our eschatological views affect our ethics. Our ethics are shaped by our worldviews, and our worldviews are shaped by our religious beliefs, especially and including our eschatological views. A worldview attempts to make sense out of the here and now by analyzing the past and projecting ahead into the future. A worldview influences all parts of a person's thoughts, motives, desires, attitudes, and behavior. So it does matter how we think about things because our worldview does influence our actions and our ethical behavior. And the thoughts that are generated by our worldview have consequences, both temporal and eternal, which shape the consequences of our lives and the destiny of our spirits. 
Ethics are manifested by the way we respond to personal challenges, to community problems, and national and international crises. Our ethics grow out of our worldview, which is shaped by many things, including our concepts about the end of the age and the second coming of Christ. So in this paper, I want to focus on how our views of last things affects our ethics. All ideas have consequences, and bad eschatological ideas have devastating consequences, not only for our personal lives, but for whole cities, regions, and nations. And I suspect if any of you have lived in South Korea during the past 20 years, uh, you're aware of, of some of the consequences that occurred in the, the uh, megachurches over there as a result of their belief in the second coming occurring in 1994 or 1988. Uh, you could probably share some personal experiences about that. But our ideas have consequences. Our concepts about Israel and her end time has shaped our foreign policy in this country in very significant ways. Several Arab and Palestinian Christians, whom I know, have told me that American and British Zionism has produced much unnecessary bloodshed and tension in the Mideast. Both Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. Now, there are not two different lords, two different faiths, two different baptisms, one for the Jew and one for the Gentile. There is only one gospel for all the nations. There are not two different ways of salvation, one for the Jew outside of Christ and another for the Gentile inside Christ. Christ is the only way of salvation for both Jew and Gentile. Christ came to bless all the nations, not just Israel. Our foreign policy needs to be even-handed for the blessing of all nations, not just lopsided support for Israel. For 150 years here in America, we have constantly been told we were living on the threshold of the end of the world and Christ's return. Prediction after prediction failed to materialize, and false hope after false hope has been foisted upon the Christian community. Some Christians were defrauded of their possessions and were so disillusioned they left the faith or committed suicide. This is a life-or-death issue for some. I know personally a lady who almost committed suicide because of the failure of those prophecies to come true in 1988. End-time speculation in Korea, South Korea, got so far out of control that some Christian women had abortions, worried about what would happen to their unborn in the rapture. The secular media, who are always looking for an excuse to discredit Christianity, certainly took advantage of that opportunity. Christ's name has been blasphemed among the nations because of our inconsistent views of eschatology and the ethical compromises that have been generated by those inconsistent views. Flawed thinking about eschatology can adversely affect our worldviews and produce unethical conduct and cultural damage. Therefore, we need to inspect the fruit that our eschatological trees have produced to see if it is indeed good ethical fruit. If it is not, then we need to inspect the tree itself to see why it is producing bad fruit. As examples of bad ethical conduct and bad ethical fruit in the eschatological arena, we might mention the recent economic cultural and geopolitical damage that resulted from the Y2K crisis nine years ago, or the failed prophecies of Hal Lindsey or Edgar Huisenot, or the megachurch in South Korea that destroyed the lives of tens of thousands of people. Dr. Francis Gummerlock, who's a member of ETS and I think is speaking this year, he's certainly here, and he's written a number of books, incredible uh, patristic scholar, 
But in his year 2000 book called The Day and the Hour, he documents over 600 occasions throughout the last two millennia of church history when our eschatological views produced bad ethical conduct and cultural damage. The Crusades is a good example of that. Anytime there were predictions and expectations of an imminent end of the world, it created anxiety, paranoia, hysteria, chaos, and even panic in the lives of those who believed the false prophets. Their lives were changed and sometimes irreparably damaged and destroyed as a result of those false prophecies. Too often we have let our eschatological views get in the way of our ethics and become a stumbling block for unbelievers and cause the name of Christ to be blasphemed among the nations. If our prophetic views force us to make compromises in the ethical area, such as making false predictions, then perhaps we need to reconsider our end-time perspective to see if it is in sync with the Bible. That's why I take the preterist view, because I believe there's a problem with traditional futurist uh, eschatology. Too many times, when socio-political and cultural tensions arise... Christians abandon the public sector and hide their lamps under a bushel. Is that the response that Jesus advised his disciples to make when the Jews and the Romans started putting socio-political pressure and cultural pressure on them to conform to the Mosaic law, to the Hellenistic philosophy, or to the Roman imperial cult? Nope, that was not the response that Jesus advised his disciples to make. In times like the first century, when there was tremendous distress and tribulation upon the church, the church was challenged to rise up and follow a higher standard of morals, ethics, and spiritual values. They did not dumb it down or compromise or lapse into relativism like we see happening in our culture today. They kept an even higher standard of ethics and morals. Acts chapter 2 records some very socialistic and communistic behavior of the church during the first century. They sold all their possessions and gave it to the leaders of the church for redistribution to the poor and needy among them. Redistribution of wealth. Sound familiar? They had a common purse. They took their meals together. Other texts in the New Testament, especially in Acts and Paul's writings, reveal more about the lifestyle of the first century saints in view of their belief that the end was near. They sacrificed marriage and childbearing to spread the gospel. A good example of that is Philip's four daughters. They remained single, did not marry. They were eunuchs, practically speaking. Apostle Paul recommends that, and we'll look at that in the text here in 1 Corinthians 7 shortly. But he recommended that in view of the present distress, the persecution that they were enduring, that they remain single and not raise a family. Paul did not remarry or did not marry. We don't know which is the case. Some have suggested that he was married before and that his non-Christian Jewish wife left him when he became a Christian. But he did not marry or remarry because he wanted to devote himself fully to the the proclamation of the gospel, and so that he could preach and go on missionary trips unencumbered by the cares of a family, etc. They sold all their property. They had all things in common. These are the kind of texts and examples that the socialists and the communists use to justify their economic theories. But is this the kind of lifestyle required of all Christians in all circumstances in all ages? Well, the communists would say, yeah. 
And the socialists would say, yeah. And Obama and uh, perhaps uh, some of his friends uh, would suggest that perhaps we need to follow that kind of redistribution of wealth that they practiced in the first century. But I would suspect that most of us, if we reflect on the New Testament, uh, would would understand that uh, this is not the kind of lifestyle that's required of all Christians in all circumstances in all ages. And the reason we know that and understand that is because Apostle Paul says so, and we'll look at that in 1 Corinthians 7 again shortly. The first century was an intense time of distress and persecution which called for a stricter standard of conduct. It did not apply to all Christians in all circumstances in all ages. Now we need to ask why the first century church was so willing to sell their property and give it to the church leaders. Why were they so willing to drop all of their economic, educational, business, marriage, family, and other pursuits to devote themselves to the proclamation of the gospel? Well, it was because they had been told by Jesus and the apostles that the end of the age was going to occur in their lifetime. Some of them standing there would not taste death until they saw the Son of Man coming. Matthew 16, verse 27 and 28. They believed that promise, and they acted accordingly. The first century saints behaved that way because they expected Christ's return in their lifetime. And they expected this because Jesus and the inspired apostles had told them that it would occur in their lifetime. This is why they dropped everything to preach the gospel. What happens to their intense expectations and devotion to Christ if those expectations were never fulfilled. And how can Jesus and the inspired apostles be considered true prophets of God if their predictions and promises of Christ's return in their lifetime were not fulfilled in that first century just like they expected? We would expect to see some very confused, disillusioned, disappointed, and demoralized disciples like what happened in 1988 in 1994, and Y2K, when the predictions of some popular false prophets failed to materialize. Why don't we see that same kind of disillusionment and abandonment of Christianity occur in the first century if Christ did not return in their lifetime like they expected it? You see, the whole reason why the first century saints followed that higher standard of conduct was because they believed Christ was about to return in their lifetime. That was the kind of conduct that Christ had commanded them to practice during those last days just before his return. If his return did not happen as they expected, then the high ethical standard that he commanded falls apart, falls flat. This is why preterists believe that the second coming occurred in the first century, just like Christ promised it would. And that explains why there was no mass abandonment of Christianity when all those who heard Christ promise his return had passed on. Christ did return and fulfill his promises to them. Those who faithfully followed that higher standard of conduct were rewarded accordingly, just like all of his parables taught that they would be. Why don't we look at one good example of the higher standard of ethical conduct that the saints were taught to live by during those times of tribulation when the end of the age was near, and that's 1 Corinthians 7, the whole chapter. I'm going to highlight just a few verses in there, but you want to read through the whole chapter as we're looking at it here. And notice uh, the first verse of chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, 
it is good for a man not to touch a woman. In Genesis chapter 2, God said it is not good for man to be alone. Paul says, eh, doesn't apply. It is good for a man not to have anything to do with women. Now, is uh, Paul a male chauvinist, or is he a an ascetic monk who's bent on being a eunuch? Uh, is he warped in his understanding here? Why is he disagreeing with what Genesis teaches about it is not good for man to be alone? He should have a wife. Paul says it's better if he doesn't. Don't have anything to do with him. Now, why is he saying this? Now, the answer to that question is down here in verse 26, especially, and down through verse 29, but we'll get to that. But I want to warn you that uh, Paul does answer the question that's raised in our mind when we read his statement, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, notice on down through here in verse 7, he says, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Again, he's reiterating this idea of voluntary acceptance of a celibate lifestyle, making himself a eunuch for the gospel's sake. In verse 8, he says, I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. He's telling all those who had uh, either been divorced by an unbelieving spouse or widows whose spouse had died, he said, remain single. Verse 17, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk, and so I direct in all the churches. So his is teaching he's not just giving to the Corinthians, but he's directing all the churches to follow this advice that he's giving them. Verse 18, was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Verse 20, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Verse 24, brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. He reiterates it twice. Verse 26, I think then, after he says all that, verse 26, I think then that this is good in view of the present tribulation. Now, he wrote this in 57 A.D., less than a year before he was arrested in Jerusalem and sent to Rome. Notice he says, I think it's good in view of the present stress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Now, if we don't have that kind of tribulation in our Christian life today, would this apply to us? No. Paul admits that. He says, this is advice I'm giving you, which I believe is good advice, because it's the the best way we can respond to this present distress that we're in. Notice verse uh, 27. He says, Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you. But I say, brethren, the time has been shortened to 2,000 years instead of 20,000 years. No, I don't think that's what he's talking about. The time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, they sell all their possessions, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. 
You see the kind of conduct he's suggesting here in view of the present distress. For, he says in verse 31, the form of this world is passing away. The time has been shortened. The form of this world is passing away. Now, what world is he talking about there? Obviously not the physical world. What about the Jewish covenantal world? The Old Testament world was about to pass away. Okay, verse 35. I say this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate in view of this present distress and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord so that they could fulfill that great commission that they'd been commanded to fulfill during their lifetime before Christ returned. Okay. Did you notice what Paul said about their behavior and lifestyle during that present time of distress when the form of this world was passing away? If the end time occurred, then that advice about how to live during those special circumstances would no longer apply to us. The socialist and the communist miss this point, but so do many futurists. We today live by the kingdom teaching of Jesus and the apostles. They came teaching that the kingdom of God was at hand. It was to come soon in their generation. All of Jesus' parables and discourses were focused on what life would be like in the kingdom and how they should live in the kingdom once it arrived. The apostles also focused on that same lifestyle. But until the kingdom arrived, there was work to be done and the disciples would have to live by a higher standard and special code of ethics and morals in order to help prepare the way for the kingdom to come by their fulfilling the Great Commission and preaching the gospel in an undistracted and highly focused way, unencumbered by the fleshly pursuits. This kind of sacrificial withdrawal from society is proper under those certain conditions and certain times when there was a present distress. But it is not proper conduct if those conditions are not present. Since the apostles deprived themselves of the normal lifestyle in their generation, we can only conclude it was because they believed that they were living in the terminal generation. They lived that way, in that lifestyle, because they believed they were in the terminal generation, not us 2,000 years later. All those things that they gave up would only have slowed them down and hindered them from accomplishing the Great Commission in their generation. Their educational status would have had little value outside of Israel, especially after AD 70. Any property that they owned inside Israel would have been taken away from them at 70 AD anyway, when the temple was destroyed and the Jews were dispersed. And if they married and had children when the tribulation came, They would have suffered even more. They would have been separated from their family. Their wives and children would have been separated from them, as what happened, literally, when the Romans took their wives as their prostitutes, took their children, and made them slaves. So there was a reason why they obeyed that lifestyle of not having children, not marrying, because they did not want to see them enslaved like that. This kind of lifestyle was correct for that particular moment in history when the Old Testament age was coming to its end and the New Testament age was beginning to dawn. But it is not a correct lifestyle for future generations of the church after AD 70. Yet there are some Christians who have tried to maintain this ascetic, monastery, monkish lifestyle throughout the last 2,000 years. By the way, if uh, any of you have the interest, go back into Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox tradition 
and try to find out how and why the monasteries formed in the first place. It was for eschatological reasons, because they believed that the coming of Christ was imminent, and so they wanted to withdraw from society. The point we need to focus on is that this particular extreme deprived lifestyle was only necessary and essential to maintain if they were in the final generation of the Old Testament age, when there would be a time of distress which would force those kinds of deprivations upon them. The fact that the first century saints followed that lifestyle that was commanded by Jesus for the terminal generation can mean only one thing. The first century church was that terminal generation. They obviously believed they were, and they got that belief from Jesus himself, who told them repeatedly that they would see all these things fulfilled in their generation. So if the end did not occur in the first century, not only were the first century saints deluded, but Jesus himself was the source of their delusion. This would make Jesus a false prophet. Liberal theologians are not bothered by that conclusion, but we evangelicals and conservatives should be bothered by that conclusion. In fact, there are people like R.C. Sproul who have said, that bothers me, and it should bother us. If Jesus was mistaken about the time of his return, then what else was he mistaken about? The whole system of faith goes down the tubes if Jesus was a false prophet. His ethics and morals and spiritual principles all stand or fall on this prophetic veracity. A true prophet must have a righteous and ethical lifestyle to match his teaching. He must practice what he preaches. His prophecies must come true Deuteronomy 18 says, or everything he says must be ignored and rejected. So eschatology does matter, and it does affect our ethics. And we need to pay close attention to how we live our lives in accordance with our worldviews, which are shaped by our eschatological views. Now, I suspect that this has raised a ton of questions in your mind. So I'm going to stop a little bit early and let you have at it. Yes. Christ did return in AD 70, then the revelation of New Jerusalem. When will that take place? It's in the unseen realm, and it was separated from man because of the fall of Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, they lost paradise. Paradise was removed from them. And instead of being able at death to go up to paradise, they were sent down to Sheol, to Hades, to await a redeemer who would come and redeem them from Sheol and take them to heaven. So do you believe that this earth will continue on for eternity? Human existence in this universe is certainly going to continue forever. And the reason I say this is in Isaiah chapter 9, and I'll start at verse 6, Isaiah 9 6. He says, uh, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be, however, an end to the increase of his government. No, that's not what the text says. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Now, think about that. There's no end to the increase of his government. No end to the increase. It just keeps on increasing. Now, this is not the only way to interpret this, but I interpret that as meaning that human life will continue to exist and that throughout eternity there will always be more and more people coming into the kingdom 
so that heaven has an ever-increasing, always-increasing number of people populating it. And our God is big enough, and heaven is big enough, to support an ever-increasing number of people coming into it. Which would glorify God more, a finite number of people in heaven, or an ever-increasing number of people coming into heaven? And what you do with the passages that talk about God's final victory over Satan's sin and death, where he casts Satan into the lake of fire and all in the final judgment. That happened in the unseen realm at 70 A.D. When Christ descended and brought heaven back down to man so that we now can go to heaven when we die, we don't have to go to Hades, he brought heaven back down to man and he took Satan out of the air in the unseen realm where he was the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2 2 says. He was the prince of the power of the air. He and his demons inhabited the air space in between heaven and earth in the unseen realm. Preventing us from going to heaven, Christ descended from heaven, brought heaven down, moved Satan down to the underworld, and brought the saints up into heaven in the unseen realm at 70 A.D. How do you answer someone who said that they've lost their hope if the second coming already happened? What is our Christian hope? My hope is that when I die, I will go to heaven to be with Christ, my Redeemer and have a new body like he has. And I have that hope. I haven't lost my hope. Being a preterist doesn't take away my hope, but that is the Christian hope, and it's not changed by the preterist view at all. Anybody else? Some of the historical proofs and Josephus, for example, that coincide with the events that took place in 8066 through 87, that time frame, in that first generation, Jesus' generation, that coincide with this conflict. Well, Josephus, of course, is a huge source uh, for information about that, and I've recently produced a, a manuscript that hadn't been put in book form yet, entitled First Century Events in Chronological Order, and I focus on those last 12 years just before the destruction of Jerusalem, which Josephus spends a lot of pages on. And I document it and give you all the citations from Josephus. It's a wonderful uh, historical summary. I'd encourage uh, everybody to get a copy of that. It's, it's down on our booth, by the way, booth 513, if you'd like to get a copy of that, called First Century Events in Chronological Order. Are there other examples of things that happened in the unseen realm? Yeah, Josephus mentions those. Uh, he mentions that. He, he says, and I'm not quoting him exactly here, but he says, I don't want to say this because it sounds like a fable. But he says, so many people saw it and told me about it that I, I feel obligated to record it. He says, before sunsetting, he gives the date, he gives the exact day and hour. Does that sound familiar? Day and hour that this event occurred. He says, before sunning, sunsetting on the, was it the 21st day of Xanthicus? They saw angelic armies in the clouds surrounding cities. And 45 days later, priests in the temple heard a loud noise, felt an earthquake, and heard a superhuman voice or a bunch of voices in unison in the unseen realm saying, let us remove ourselves from here. Let us go from here. Let us depart from here. That was just, that was in 66 AD four years before the temple was destroyed. 
three and a half years, actually. So there were some <clears throat> incredible things happening in the unseen realm. Hard to call that unseen because you have a manifestation here in the present. It's a cosmological event. It's, it, cosmology is the study of the whole universe, including its unseen and seen realms, and how the unseen realm and seen realm interact together. And uh, this is a, a case where the unseen realm then becomes visible and experiential. Thank you very much. This has been Then and Now with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to Preterist1 at Preterist.org. Our website has many great articles, books, and audio video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. This teaching ministry depends on your donations, and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org, or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now, where we study the past to shape a better future.